right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Today, we're all looking for ways to save. That's why I want to tell you about HealthLock. What is HealthLock? HealthLock is a healthcare technology company that securely connects with your family's insurance and monitors your medical claims as they come in, then flags any hidden errors like overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To save, visit HealthLock.com. Do it today before you see another healthcare provider. That's HealthLock.com. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Moms for Liberty lost nearly every race they were involved in. We have such a great show for you today. Inside Elections, Jacob Rubashkin talks about the hidden lessons from the 2023 election. Then we'll talk to George Laws about new legislation to finally make Puerto Rico a state. But first we have the bulwarks, Charlie Sykes. Welcome back to Fast Politics, the great Charlie Sykes. Hey, it's good to be here. Good to be anywhere. Me too. Um, I just got your newsletter this morning, Morning Shots from the Bulwark. That headline, you're just scum. Yeah, this is the debate we deserve, you know. It was, uh, <laughs> I was watching the debate last night, as I said, and, you know, I'm, I, I suppose I'm supposed to be watching for all the nuance and the substance and, you know, who's making this move on abortion or on, on Ukraine. And, and unfortunately, I just got distracted by, you know, asking, you know, what, what is what is Nikki Haley going to do? Is she going to push Vivek into the locker or is she going to skewer him with a five inch heel? <laughs> because the guy is such an insufferable prick. This is the problem. And the fact that five minutes ago, anybody in this country took him seriously as a plausible presidential candidate. I mean, doesn't that say something about the, the times we live in? Obviously, he's a complete joke but there is a world like i actually feel bad for you as like the last of the normal oh, republicans i'm sorry i'm sorry is that mean i relish your pity <laughs> here's nikki haley she is actually a good candidate who could win a general election and there's no way she's going to get the nomination no there isn't actually that was something else i was watching you know thinking that if you're a normal rational republican and you're watching this debate and, you, and look, I, you know, I, I have a lot of problems with Nikki Haley. I've written a lot about her. She's made some, shall we say, compromises in her life. But yes, true. if you're a Republican and you're looking at her, you're thinking, who would you rather go into 2024 with behind Nikki Haley or Donald Trump? And for all of her flaws, think about what a superior candidate she would be. By the way, just think about how our politics would be transformed in the blink of an eye if you swapped out Donald Trump for some just reasonably normal Republican like Nikki Haley. But it's not going to happen, as you point out. It's interesting because it's like the thing I think about is I don't agree with her on almost everything, but you could see her like people voting for her. 
because she's offering them something. Right. And she's also just making some of those policies, which I don't agree with, sort of palatable for mainstream people. Well, also, look, I mean, she, she's got some substance. She's able to, to speak with a good deal of authority on foreign affairs. You know, her, her discussion of Israel and Ukraine, I thought, was was really solid. When she first talked about, you know, getting a compromise on abortion, I think people thought she was uh, dancing and dodging. But uh, but I think it actually sounded more reasonable last night. Now, whether or not you can sustain that in a campaign, I don't know. I think it's kind of silly to engage in the who's the winner and who's the loser in the debate, although clearly Tim Scott was the loser and Vivek make him, made himself a joke. And I thought that she did about as well as she could, as long as we recognize this is a Potemkin debate, that they're just going through the motions. Right, exactly. This, this is a debate among people who either want to be vice president or want their own podcast or something else because they're not going to be the Republican nominee. And by the way, nobody seems to care the fact Donald Trump just completely blows off these debates, does not even show up, has no intention of ever showing up. And I guess I'm old enough to remember when that would be a thing and it doesn't even register. It's not it's we've completely normalized the fact that he's off with Roseanne Barr, who's having this <laughs> irrational meltdown at one of his rallies. And people go, yeah, OK, so. I'm thinking that Donald Trump is the big winner tonight. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Hello, people. Can we just can we focus on the crazy for a moment? I just I'm sorry. Little PTSD. You're right to bring this up. And I, I want to ask you because you have actual experience with the Republican Party. I mean, isn't this sort of a, a sign of how weak the party is that they have no power over their front runner? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's just, it's just like. Donald Trump on a hourly basis, giving Ronna McDaniel Romney yeah. or whatever her name is now, giving her a noogie <laughs> and just reminding her that, you know, I own you. I own you. What? You want to have another debate? Come here. Let's try this again. No, it's it's humiliating. But also the fact that you have all of these candidates on stage and and I'm and I'm sorry, Molly, you'll, you'll know where I'm coming from on all of this. But as I'm reading a lot of the punditry, I'm thinking, have we forgotten what we're actually talking about here? The front-running candidate for president of the United States on the Republican ticket is facing more than 90 felony charges. He's on trial for fraud. A federal judge has found him liable for rape. He is being accused by the federal government of violating the Espionage Act. He is facing racketeering charges. The U.S. government is accusing him of trying to overthrow the election, engaging in lies, trickery, deceit, and fraud. And none of these Republican candidates can figure out, hmm, how do I run against this guy? Yeah. Like, how do, how do, how do I beat this trying. guy? They're not even trying. They're not even trying. I mean, New yeah. York is about to take away his business license. Right. So he cannot have a business. And they're not. And they're like, oh, we shouldn't dare to try to make a case against this guy. I mean, Chris Christie does it. But I mean, you know, the problem right. is that if you're Chris Christie, you needed Donald Trump there as a foil. And yeah. so it's. You know, as, as as much as I want to root for Christie, you can't you can't punch a punching bag that doesn't show up. So, right. uh, yeah. So he's been saying the right things and he'll go through, you know, he'll he'll say he'll point out that it seems like a bad idea to nominate somebody who's going to spend most of their time <laughs> in the dock in a criminal <laughs> trial. I mean, yeah, you know, again, five minutes ago, a rational political party would have said, yeah, that makes sense. It's a really bad idea. And Chris Christie says <laughs> it and people go, boo, boo. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's true. And I also think as we watch this, we see Christie, remember, has like got COVID from Trump and was, I mean, you know, he did, nearly died because of Trump. I mean, and he worked in the Trump administration. I feel like the one thing I don't feel like we talk about this enough. Again, it's like one of the uncomfortable realities. But like there are a bunch of people who served in the Trump administration happily. I mean, a lot of people. And then they sort of decided it was a bridge too far or maybe it wasn't or maybe they were about to get charged with perjury. And so they decided they'd write a book and get out of it. Now, you know, there's something to be said for that. And, it, you know, it's good for people to, to pull back the curtain. But it's also there's a percentage of craven there. 
there's a big walloping <laughs> dose of craven there. But on the other hand, you know, right. when 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 you're in the foxhole, you you really you know can't be checking the resumes of everybody that's jumping in with you. I am willing to welcome any convert. Now, I I I, th- I continue to be amazed at the fact that, and this this also is, I continue to be amazed that that something's happening that has never happened in American presidential history. The number of people who have worked in the Trump White House or served on the Trump cabinet who are out there saying this man is nuts, this man um is disconnected. From from reality. He is dangerous. And it doesn't seem to be mattering. I mean, normally you would think, okay, what would happen if his handpicked attorney general, if his own chief of staff, if his secretary of state, if his secretary <laughs> of defense, if his national security advisor, if one aide after another came out and said, guys, this is terrible. This man is completely unfit to serve. You would think that, again, a rational political party in a world we do not inhabit would say, yeah, maybe we ought to listen to the people who were in the room while the shit was happening. And again, it doesn't seem to be making much of a difference. Yeah, it is unbelievable that a month ago there was this news cycle where Trump said, you know, I think we should execute Mark Milley. And people were like, well, this seems pretty bad. And then it sort of went away. Okay, we we could play this game. And the one before that, there was a news cycle where I've lost track of the news cycles. Remember, Molly, do you remember when he actually put in writing that we should suspend the U.S. Constitution to allow him to be returned to power. And remember that news cycle when he was having dinner with neo-Nazis? Huh. And then there was the news cycle. And this is part of the problem, is that we keep moving on, and the default setting of most of our punditry now is just horse race stuff. No, let's let's gaze a little bit more in our navel. We'll talk about this poll, or we'll talk about that, or we'll do this game theory about all of that. It's like, hello, do you remember who Donald Trump is? What Donald Trump has done, what Donald Trump tells us on a regular basis he's going to do. See, Molly, you and I can engage in Trump derangement syndrome and say, you know what? Second Trump term. It would be all about revenge and retribution. Trump is like, you know, says, hold my beer. Absolutely. And we're going to execute the top general. And I have this list of people that we're going to criminally prosecute. It's like you can't come up with something that he is not going, no, I'll do you one better. You know, (laughs) you you think I'm not going to support Ukraine? Hmm, I'm going to fuck NATO altogether. I'm going to abandon all of our allies. And I want to point out for our listeners that I'm not laughing because this is funny. I'm laughing because it's just so upsetting that the only way I can process it is. And I mean, what you're saying is funny, but it's funny, tragic, not funny. Oh, no, no. It's it's also if you're not laughing at it, what are you doing? You're like blowing your brains out. You know, it's like. It's yeah, exactly. And it's it, it really is, you know, it's up to 11. So there's no world in which he disappears. The the thing I wanted to ask you is we've seen the polls again. We don't even need to talk about the polls, but obviously yeah. they somehow have American people deciding against it's 3000 people in five states, but who answer their cell phones to unknown numbers. So I'm just going to put that out there. But that group has decided they love Donald Trump and think he has incredible mental acuity, which, OK, I mean, that's bad. But if Trump loses in 2024, which we really need to happen so democracy survives, I don't think he goes away. Oh, see, I was hoping I didn't have to go here this early. I remember that moment (laughs) when I was doing my podcast back in 2020 and I said, you know, even if he loses, he could run in 2024. Nothing bans him. He's not going to ever he's not going to admit he lost because Donald Trump never loses. He's going to run in 2020. And people went, no, no. Oh, my God. And and so so you raise the question, he loses in 2024. There is no chance that he graciously concedes. Zero. There is no chance that he acknowledges his defeat. Right. There's no chance that he does not press the Republican Party in Congress to overturn the election. And there is a very real chance that Donald Trump will fully intend to run again in 2028. OK, I need to start day drinking. Just you just pushed me right <laughs> over the limit here. I don't think he's a better <laughs> candidate in 2028. I mean, he's not a, right. He'll be, he'll be 82 no, then. I, or, no, he'll be 80. I don't know. He'll be 85 or something. I mean, he'll be the most robust candidate. He will be <laughs> the best and strongest candidate. This yeah, has been part of this sort of this this cycle, this nightmarish cycle that we're in here <laughs> evolving this. But and, and what I'm also noting is that and, and I'm going to take a shot at my at some of our uh, never Trump friends. I am a never Trumper. 
that because we've been doing this for eight years, there's almost a PTSD <laughs> about this where I sense a bookend on social media between the triumphalism of the MAGA folks. We're going to win. Nothing you will do will stop us. And the never Trumpers who go, we will never win. There's nothing we can do to stop them. It's kind of like a bookend. It's like the arrogance and the despair. Yeah. Let's wallow in our despair. At a certain point, you just got to suck it up and go, okay, we're not the crazy ones. We don't have to buy right. the bullshit. Let's not fall into the trap of assuming that we are dealing with some otherworldly genius who has scoped right. out everything and that we are incapable of, of finding a way of stopping him or blocking him or humiliating him. I mean, yeah. it is almost a Stockholm syndrome that I'm seeing here. Yeah. The people yeah. going, hey, you know, here's my hot take. Who won the election? Donald Trump's the big winner. Who won the debate? Donald Trump's the big winner. Right. What's going to happen on abortion? Well, Donald Trump is going to figure. No, this guy is he has this reptilian instinct, which, which I do not underestimate. He does have a reptilian instinct and, and, and a certain low cunning. But if you watch him, what you also realize that his arrogance, his narcissism and his fundamental shallowness does catch up with him occasionally. You know, you put yeah. him on the stand in New York and I'm sorry, that was not a master class in being a defendant. No, that was a man squirming not. and raging against the dark. And screaming at the judge who's about to decide his fate, which Brilliant. in my mind is not a great move. Oh, really? Huh. See, I'm not a lawyer either, but um, that didn't seem smart to me. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is the thing is, you know, he is not some cunning genius. We only have a few minutes left and I don't want to just talk about Trump because I want to talk to you about this is theoretically a good Senate map. Republicans, we have 2023 is over. We had this election where Democrats really won. I'm hoping you can talk about Glenn Youngkin was sort of shopped as this moderate. He never was really a moderate. I think he offered a sort of more diluted form of Trumpism. The people of Virginia, they sort of they did not give him a mandate. Well, he's a moderate in the sense of in terms of where the window has moved. I mean, the definitions are shifting here, but uh, you know, there was the fever dream of the donor class that he was going to be able to come in and, you know, perhaps save them from Trump. That was never going to happen. That's why I said, <laughs> no, his ambitions have gone to the rapidly filling unicorn graveyard. He was a unicorn there. But I think what's really rattled Republicans um, after this election is the recognition they have two problems and, and, they, and they are separable problems. I mean, number one is the obvious problem of abortion. Abortion is not going away. It is still motivating voters. And they had hoped that they had cracked the code in Virginia by coming up with the 15 week ban, figuring that a 15 week ban polls much better than a six week ban. Right. Which it does. Yeah, And you can tell that you talk to Republicans that are thinking, OK, this is the way out of this particular problem that we have created. What you saw in Virginia was that voters are not focusing on the number of weeks. They're focusing on the word ban. And so the 15 week ban flopped. And that was their default setting. That was their off ramp. And now they're going, oh, we're screwed on this. Their second problem, besides abortion, which is not going away, is that MAGA continues to be a loser. You know, what happened in Kentucky is amazing, really, when you think about it. Trump wins by 26 points, deep red state. Andy Bashir was elected governor by, I think, by 5,000 votes four years ago. Donald Trump goes all in. Daniel Cameron, the Republican, puts on the MAGA red hat, runs full out, full-throated MAGA. The Democrats push back, say, you know, we're, we're running against MAGA extremists. We have a centrist Democrat against MAGA extremists. And Andy Bashir wins by five points. That is a comfortable margin in that state, a state that Donald Trump won by 26 points. So MAGA continues to be a boat anchor. Abortion is not going away and they haven't figured out how to handle it. Yeah. And this is Kentucky. This is not Georgia. This is not a sweet right. state. This is a red state. Now Wisconsin. Yeah. Wisconsin. Sorry. Um, yeah. I think it's really a good point that they can't win on abortion. I would like to talk to you for a second about what happened in Mississippi, because, mm -hmm. again, I haven't seen enough reporting about what happened in Mississippi, but I have some anxiety that it was not so easy to vote in Mississippi. I honestly don't know. I mean, I've seen the same reports you've seen about running out of ballots. I do think that there have been efforts to make it harder to vote, particularly in urban areas. I was on a conference call yesterday about uh, voting in Wisconsin. You know, voting in Wisconsin is, you know, vote turnout is dramatically up everywhere except in the urban areas in places like Milwaukee, where they have made it harder to vote, the various changes in state law. So I don't know how, whether, you know, how that played out 
in Mississippi. If I remember my history, I believe that Mississippi has kind of a checkered past when it comes yeah. to voting rights, right? <laughs> yes, I'm pretty sure. It's kind of a track record there. It is not implausible to think that in Mississippi um, they made it more difficult. But I, I simply don't don't have enough information. Right. But I do think that's a good point. And I do think that the battle for voting rights, I think people find it boring, but it is actually quite an important you know, thing that underscores all of those. Well, I, yes, obviously. You know, a lot of things that we had taken for granted are now obviously at risk. And I think this is we're living through an era in which, you know, our, our, our complacency has been shattered on one issue after another and certainly ought to be shattered about our complacency about the robustness of our democracy. Charlie Sykes, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back. Anytime, Molly. Anytime. Thank you. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats, even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag-A-Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Jacob Rubashkin is an analyst and reporter for Inside Elections. Welcome to Fast Politics, Jacob. Yeah, thanks for having me. We are a few days out from an off-year, I think it's like an off-off-off-off-year election. First, I want you to explain a little bit about what you do, and then I'm going to make you interpret the results. 
I'm a reporter and analyst for Inside Elections. We exclusively cover elections, primarily for the House and Senate and governor, but also some presidential and when the need arises, a state level things that can inform us about the, the national political environment. So we spend our whole day looking at data, looking at data, but also interviewing sources, interviewing candidates, talking to people here in D.C., but also out in all of these districts and states where the races are taking place and combining the data that we see with those interviews and on the ground reporting we do to paint as full a picture as possible. There were a few state elections, some very important, some an indicator. I was told that from the White House world that this is the first time in 30 years that a president's party has done this well consistently on an off year. Talk to me about sort of the meaning of these elections. I mean, were they from just a sort of straight data, no opinion point of view? Do you see this as having been a good cycle for Democrats? Absolutely. I think for the most part, when you look at kind of these disparate races that took place in a handful of states across the country, Democrats did well in almost all of them. Right. I think if you looked at any individual contest, right, if you said, I'm only going to look at Virginia or I'm only going to look at Kentucky, you would say, OK, well, Democrats did well in that race, but it's just one state. Right. It's a local race. But Andy Bershear, let's talk about Kentucky for a minute. He won by 5000 in that first race. In this second race, he actually did better. Right. Absolutely. I mean, he got, went from winning by 5,000 votes to, to 5%, and in Kentucky, no less, which is obviously a, a very Republican state these days. So, you know, I think that the, the sum total of everything, the fact that they didn't just do well in one or two of these states, but that they did well in almost every state that was holding a, an interesting election here is what makes it a good night for Democrats across the board. Virginia and Kentucky both have this issue of abortion, right? Uh, Bershare ran on abortion. He was unapologetically pro-choice. He talked about it. He really, which is a little bit counterintuitive in a red state like that, but he really ran on it. And in Virginia, you know, the idea here was that Democrats needed to hold, and we interviewed a ton of people from both the state Senate races and the House of Delegates races, because we are nothing if not in the weeds. They needed to hold the state Senate Winning the House of Delegates didn't even, in my mind, I, I was surprised. The Democrats did that. They really ran on this idea that if Youngkin was able to have a rubber, rubber stamping state legislature, he would ban abortion at 15 weeks. Yeah, absolutely. Abortion certainly the dominant issue in those Virginia races. You know, it was really interesting. We saw for the first time Republicans try and coalesce around a single message on abortion, right? Ever since the Dobbs ruling came down a year and a half ago, Republican candidates have struggled to get on the same page about what they're proposing to fill the gap that, you know, Roe versus Wade used to fill. And some candidates wanted a total ban, no exceptions, Oklahoma style. Some wanted six weeks, 10 weeks, 15 weeks, 20 weeks. It was all over the map. And what they were trying to do in Virginia was Youngkin basically said, we're going to go 15 weeks. That's what the polling tells us is popular. Everyone who's running for state legislature is going to get on the same page about 15 weeks. We're all going to run ads 15 weeks. It's not a ban. It's a reasonable limit. And it was not enough to get them over the finish line. So I, yeah. I do think it'll be interesting to see what Republicans do now that that experiment fell short. Do they stay with this 15 weeks because that's what the polling numbers say? Or are they back to a state of disarray when it comes to what exactly the party as a whole is proposing on abortion. That is a really interesting point, right? Because this is here's someone who took a more quote unquote moderate view. There's a lot and that's sort of supported by polling, right? Not like a Mike Johnson view, but a really kind of careful view. And he, too, really got his clock cleaned. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, you know, it's been fascinating to see Republicans kind of within this particular issue sphere learn a lesson that I think Democrats have been learning for quite some time, for instance, when it comes to guns, right? Democrats talk all the time about how universal background checks have a 90 percent approval rating in the general public, right? 90 percent of voters support more restrictive gun laws like universal background checks, assault weapon ban, things like that. And yet when they go to the polls, 
they aren't just going to vote for the candidate that supports that policy, right? There are a lot of other considerations, primarily whether they think they'll just stop at that, you know, either the 15-week ban when it comes to abortion or, you know, just a universal background check. There's a lack of trust when it comes to Republicans on abortion that meant that even though they were saying in these ads, I'm only going to go 15 weeks, voters didn't necessarily believe that because they saw them cheering on the striking down of Roe versus Wade, they saw them take more restrictive stances in the past. And so they weren't willing to vote on faith that Republicans would just do that and and nothing more, at least the voters who, who might be open to that. And then, of course, you've got a lot of voters who don't support 15 weeks and were never going to back a Republican who they thought was going to pass any sort of abortion restriction. Is there a sense in which it's Trumpism, but I think it's more than that. It's sort of because not all of these people are Trumpists, but there is a certain mega bravado, right? And we see it in Mike Johnson and we see it in Jim Jordan, this sort of performative politics that is very crazy and very loud and Lauren Boebert and MTG. Do you think that this is creating an atmosphere of mistrust? for the Republican Party. I'm just thinking out loud when I think about like voters not taking politicians at their word. Youngkin's whole thing was that he was talked about as someone who could sell himself as a moderate. What he was unable to do in this election cycle was sell himself as a moderate, right? They didn't trust him. So I just wonder how you get to a place where voters really where the R next to your name hurts you in your inability to, you know, sell the sell the game, right? Yeah, look, I, I think that there are a couple things going on, right? I think that specifically to this race and this set of races, Youngkin was not on the ballot himself. I think right. he is still popular in Virginia as an individual figure. And obviously he won that election narrowly, but he still won two years ago. And He did that by winning over a lot of voters who have typically voted Democratic. But I do think that in the Trump era, right, really ever since 2016, yeah, there has been a shift in the way that a lot of voters, voters that are heavily represented in Virginia, right, Virginia is kind of ground zero in a lot of ways for a lot of the shifts that we've seen in the two-party coalitions over the last decade or so have become more skeptical of Republicans. And I think everyone is skeptical of their politicians in general. And that's that's not a bad thing. That's probably a good thing that voters don't just blindly believe what a politician says they're going to do in a campaign ad. Right. And they may be more skeptical of Democrats. That's possible, too. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, look, the Virginia races were very close. Right. We're going to look at a state Senate that's 2119, a state house that's 5149. It doesn't get much closer than that. So I do think that this was a loss for Republicans. They put a lot of political capital, a lot of financial capital behind trying to flip the state Senate and get full control of government. They felt short, absolutely. But this was not a wipeout. This was a very, very narrow result in favor of Democrats. But they lost the House of Delegates. They did. And and, and that's why I'm saying it's not it's not a good outcome for Republicans. It could have been a lot worse for them. There were four or five seats that were very narrow that went for Republicans that could have easily flipped to Democrats. And so I wonder what the lesson is going to be that Republicans draw from this, whether it's a lesson about abortion or whether it's a lesson about Virginia just not quite being there for them yet, whether it's a lesson about vote by mail, which is something that they invested in heavily this election cycle for the first time. I think there are a lot of different lessons that they might pull out of the results here that might not just be, we've got to totally rethink on abortion again. Right. And quite frankly, Republicans are really in a sticky wicket when it comes to abortion, because the people who are their bread and butter, the people who they must win in order to win elections, they have gone to the Republican Party because they want abortion ban. Yeah, it's tough. It is not something that the party has figured out how to solve yet. You know, I I think it was interesting for the five people who watched the Republican primary debate last night. I don't know. I was one of them. I don't know if you were, you know, we've got two or five on the podcast. Okay, one of five. They don't pay me enough to watch that debate. I'm sorry (laughs) to tell you. One of the interesting moments was when abortion came up, you know, an hour and 45 minutes in, which I think was a, a little late for such a pressing issue. You know, there was a real difference in opinion among the people on the stage that I thought was illustrative of the kind of internal struggle that Republicans are going on between 
people who want a national law, people like Nikki Haley who might vote for a national law or sign a national law, but thinks it's not feasible and so not worth, you know, even talking about because it'll turn voters off. People like Chris Christie who are like, whatever the states want, if New Jersey wants to have no limits, that's fine with New Jersey. Again, you don't have to say anything here, but because I know you're not on the opinion side, but I will say because this is I'm on the opinion side. This is a lie. This whole thing about that it's a state's rights. They have uh, right now, you know, a group trying to to ban the abortion pill. So you Yes, they shop it that way, but that's not really what it is. Yeah, I think that there was a lot missing from that discussion. Obviously, the judge down in Texas that's trying to ban mifepristone, the dynamics there that went totally unremarked upon are important and Republicans really don't have an answer for them. The, the movement to try and ban contraception, I think, which is even as unpopular as a lot of the abortion restrictions are, right? Contraception bans are times 10 unpopularity, not not really, of course, but, you know, qu- quite significant. They are not just all over the place in terms of what they want, but they're all over the place in how to talk about it and how to try and sell voters on trusting them on abortion policy. They have not figured that out yet. And I don't think they're any closer to figuring it out for, for next year's elections. The thing I am struck by with this Republican contest is there is no one who is offering a radically different view of Trumpism, really. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the candidates who are even slightly deviating have really struggled to gain traction. Obviously, you know, someone like Asa Hutchinson, who is that, right? The former governor right. of Arkansas, who I think is still technically running, but hasn't made any of the debates since the first one. Honestly, he probably had the most clearly articulated kind of return to pre-Trump Republicanism as his platform. He was one of the only candidates other than Chris Christie, who basically has said Trump should be barred from running for president. He is probably going to be a convicted felon. You know, he obviously didn't get anywhere. But look, I think that most of the people who see a version of republicanism that's different than Trumpism have voluntarily or involuntarily left the party. And they've certainly left any sort of real positions of power within the party. And if they are still there in positions of power, they're smart enough not to rock the boat too much because they know which way the electorate swings. But again, it does come back to this the base wants something different than what the general wants. Yeah. I mean, I think that is probably the case. I think there's a lot of data floating out there right now to suggest that, you know, if the election were held today, things might be a little closer than than perhaps anticipated. I don't think that's necessarily a reflection of general election voters wanting Trumpism and more just they've forgotten what Trumpism is and they don't like Biden. And so they're just grasping for whatever alternative. Let's talk about that poll because... There's actually also there was another one, too. So there were two polls, a CNN poll, and a New York Times poll, and they both basically said the same thing, which is that voters are not very happy with Biden. And for a number of reasons, him being old, being very high on the list. So I just want to, like, take a minute here to sort of look at this for a second. So these polls compared Biden. They were sort of they were like, how do you feel about Biden? Right. And even like the exit polls. I don't totally trust the polls. And again, 3000 people, six states, but they are the states that matter. But the exit polling in Ohio, for example, that's something I put more faith in. Right. Because they're voting anyway. They're in there. This exit polling. Biden got very poor marks from them in Ohio, which is a red state. But then they absolutely voted for the abortion initiative. So is it a smart play to put abortion on the ballot everywhere? And will that help Democrats on the ticket? I think absolutely. It's not a silver bullet, right? It's not like if there's an abortion, right? Obviously, Ohio was not going to vote 56 percent for Joe Biden if the abortion referendum were on the ballot next to Biden. But I do think that from a turnout perspective, Once you get people into the voting booth for whatever reason, right, whether it's to vote for Biden or to vote to enshrine abortion rights in the state constitution, if they're a Democrat, they're far more likely to vote for Joe Biden, right? The the worry that I think Biden has right now is that people just aren't going to show up. Younger voters, voters of color, people who are dissatisfied with the job he's doing might just sit it out. It's not that they're going to vote for Trump because I think ultimately 
those people dislike Trump far more than they dislike Biden. But the thing that items like the the ballot referenda helps with is is getting those voters in the ballot box in the first place. And once they're there, they're probably not going to leave the top of the ticket blank, especially right. with Trump's name on the ballot. So I think we're seeing in states across the country, I think the most notable one is Florida. We'll see if they get there or not because it's a tough process to get on the ballot. But we're seeing Democrats really try and get abortion referenda on the ballot in as many states as possible for next year so they can try and get whatever boost out of it they can. And there were a lot of tight races. But one of the things that Dave Wasserman, as you and I both know, (laughs) blue wave Dave or red wave Dave, I want to read this to you because I think it's a little bit interesting. He said that it seems in his mind that there was a turnout problem for Republicans and that there was a sort of an enthusiasm problem. And I was wondering if you had seen that and also what your take on that was. Yeah, look, I I think that one of the things that we are beginning to grapple with in kind of the Trump era of politics is this question of, who is showing up to vote in off-year elections, in special elections. And Kentucky Republicans had a turnout enthusiasm problem. Sorry, that was what I was looking for. Yeah, you know, I think that that is a, a very reasonable question to ask. You know, I, I think that it's become clear that one of the major shifts in coalitions over the last 10 years, right, has been We've seen college-educated voters move toward the Democratic Party, and we've seen lower propensity, non-college-educated voters, more rural voters, move toward the Republican Party. And that has resulted in, potentially, right, a special election electorate, an off-year election electorate that favors Democrats in some structural ways, because the more educated you are, the more likely you're going to show up to vote in an off-year election the more engaged politically you are, right, the the more likely you are to show up in an off-year election. And so Republicans, I think, as they've lost some of those voters in the suburbs of, of even in states like Kentucky, right, which, you know, has a lot of wealthy suburbs outside of Louisville and Lexington, has wealthy suburbs up by Cincinnati, places where Andy Bashir did significantly better in 2023 than he did in 2019, that's a real problem for them when it comes to these off-year elections. Same thing in Virginia. You know, we saw in Northern Virginia, Democrats ultimately did pretty well. And you've got a lot of college-educated voters there, a lot of government workers there. Right. In Hampton Roads, for instance, where the Democratic coalition skews a little bit more rural, a little bit you know, uh, reliant on, on black voters, we saw Democrats not do as well in some of those districts. So even within Virginia, we saw kind of the effects of the, the change in coalitions on, on the turnout and, and the ultimate results. So Moms for Liberty and Parental Rights. Let's talk about this parental rights, quote unquote. This was the sort of thing that a lot of Republicans thought would win them elections. And Moms for Liberty ran a whole slate of school board candidates, including Justice Alito's daughter. And they all lost except for one of them. Talk to me about that weirdness. We have seen a segment of the Republican Party really lean into social issues over the last couple of years, be it issues about schools and the kind of books that students are reading, transgender issues, treatment for trans kids. We have seen Republicans lean into those issues as political messaging tools to very, very mixed, I would say, negative results from a political perspective. I I think what What happened ultimately was that there was a reaction to school closures during COVID. There was a reaction to masking rules during COVID that really did drive a lot of parents who otherwise would have voted down the line for Democrats to consider voting for Republicans. And when we look at like the 2021 Virginia elections, right, I think it's clear that some of the things Terry McAuliffe said about parents and schools hurt him and they contributed to that loss. But I think the the mistake Republicans made was they mapped that anger onto a different issue, which is books and learning about sexuality and learning about transgender people and like those kinds of issues, which which were very different, very different than COVID restrictions. And they expected the same people who were angry about COVID to be angry about those things. And they weren't. Right. And so so we saw and it's not just the Moms for Liberty on the school board. It was Daniel Cameron in Kentucky and his allies 
running ads assailing Andy Bashir for, you know, the line was that he supports gender change surgery for trans kids, right? That was in mm. millions of dollars. I think they ran $5 million in ads that mentioned those surgeries. And it wasn't effective. It didn't, even in deep red Kentucky, that was not an issue that motivated people to go out and vote against Andy Bashir. So we saw that at the school board level that they, uh, you know, a lot of these Moms for Liberty slates failed to, to capture or retain control of school boards. We saw it at the state level as well in, in Kentucky where it just didn't click with voters at all. Thank you, Jacob. Of course. George Laws is the executive director of the Puerto Rico Statehood Council. Welcome to Fast Politics, George. Thank you so much, Molly. It's great to be here. We are here to talk about something that isn't an obsession of mine. I feel like it's a like a low-key obsession of every Democrat we know, which is the 51st state. No, I'm not talking about South, South Dakota or North, North Dakota or West, West Dakota. I'm talking about an actual place with a lot of people, which is part of America, even though Donald Trump, I think now he knows. Let's talk about Puerto Rico. Definitely. So your project, tell me what it's called and tell me all about it, though. Our project is called PR 51st, and you can go to PR51st.com to check us out. And it makes a lot of sense because this is all about the 51st state. Exactly. It's a project by the nonprofit that I lead as executive director, which is the Puerto Rico Statehood Council. And our goal is to advance full equality and democracy for the U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico, which unfortunately for over 125 years have been relegated to a second-class status by Congress because in American democracy under the U.S. Constitution, unless you're a U.S. citizen that lives in a state, you don't actually get voting representation in the Senate or in the House of Representatives, and you don't have any voting representation in the Electoral College. So you're subject to federal laws, but you're deprived of any actual say in those laws. And then on top of it, you're treated unequally under them. And that's what we're seeking to end. And we support statehood as the best solution for Puerto Rico and America. Why is it that Puerto Rican statehood has such a hard time? Well, you know, this issue has been an issue that's been around for 125 years. And I think it has such a hard time because it's out of sight and out of mind for the majority of the American public most of the time. That changed significantly in 2017. Uh, when we had the hurricanes Irma and Maria devastate Puerto Rico, Americans saw a lot of the horrible footage of the damage that was happening on the island and the lackluster response by President Trump and his administration during that time. And uh, as a result, a lot of people were appalled that, hey, here are fellow American citizens, just as important to us as our fellow citizens in Texas and in Florida and in Louisiana, when they experience natural disasters, uh, we should be taking care of them too. So I think that that's really elevated the awareness about the fact that, you know, our fellow American citizens in Puerto Rico are treated unequally. And then that's increasing the visibility of this issue. But traditionally, most people stateside are just really unaware that our fellow citizens on the island are treated unequally and deprived of full democracy and full voting rights. How would Puerto Rican statehood actually happen? Give us the nuts and bolts here. So the U.S. Constitution is very clear that Congress has the power to admit new states into the union. They've done so 37 times since the original 13 colonies became the first states. So there's a pretty clear precedent for how this happens. Congress has to pass legislation the way that they did it uh, in the case of Alaska and Hawaii, which were the last two states to be admitted, is that there were locally sponsored votes that were held in those territories. Majority of the citizens there said that they didn't want to continue being territories and that they wanted to be states. And then took a lot of pressure and a lot of work for Congress to finally get around to passing what they called an admission bill. But eventually they did. And what that bill said is, we're offering you Alaska and Hawaii admission into the union. And if your citizens vote yes in a final vote, then you're in. And that's basically what happened in 1959. And those were the last two states that joined the union. It doesn't require a constitutional amendment. It doesn't require two thirds vote in either chamber. It's a simple a majority in the House and the Senate and the signature of the president and uh, Puerto Rico would be on the path uh, to becoming America's 51st state. 
So does that seem possible? And let's talk about the sort of support you have in the government. So it definitely seems more possible now than it has ever been. And I'll tell you why. Because much the same way that happened in Alaska and Hawaii, in Puerto Rico, over the last decade, we've held three locally sponsored votes. They're called plebiscites, uh, where voters were given the option to choose between continuing to be a territory and the non-territory options that are available under the Constitution, which are statehood, independence, and free association. And each time voters rejected continuing under the current territory status, and they favored statehood over the non-territory options. And that has generated significant momentum for this issue to advance. During the last session of Congress, the House actually passed a bill that would essentially authorize a federally sponsored vote that would give voters in Puerto Rico that, that very choice to choose between statehood, independence, or independence with free association. It passed with unanimous support among House Democrats and even 16 Republican votes, which considering that we were just a couple of weeks away from Republicans taking over the House majority. It was amazing to be able to get that much bipartisan support. And it also passed with a statement of administration policy by the Biden administration saying that they endorsed this bill. So that passed in December. And unfortunately, the Senate obviously didn't have time to take up the measure. And that's where we pick up with what happened this week with Senator Martin Heinrich introducing a Senate companion bill that would allow for this process to take place for Puerto Ricans to choose their future. And the bill came out with a historic amount of original co-sponsors with 21 Senate members, uh, one fifth of the Senate already saying that they endorse this idea and that they want to have this happen. What does that mean? It means that right now we have the opportunity to accumulate support for this legislation and have that legislation be brought up in committees so it can be debated and other senators who aren't engaged on this issue can become aware of it. And, you know, when the right opportunity comes, which, you know, maybe during this session, but more likely than not, we'll have to wait until the next session of Congress. We have the opportunity to actually pass this legislation, have Congress officially commit to offering voters in Puerto Rico a definitive choice among the non-territory options, and then ultimately let Puerto Rico decide its future. And I firmly believe that if Congress offers the U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico the opportunity to choose between statehood independence or independence with free association, that an overwhelming majority of voters are going to choose statehood because I think they think that that's the, the best option for Puerto Rico. And they also feel very strongly that it's the best option for strengthening American democracy. Explain to me what happened yesterday. So yesterday we had a historic press conference. Senator Martin Heinrich led the introduction of a bill called the Puerto Rico Status Act. This is the Senate companion to the House bill that I mentioned was passed in the House last session, was introduced, uh, reintroduced again this session of Congress. He had 21 members of the Senate in total participating as sponsors of the bill. The governor of Puerto Rico, Pedro Pierluisi, who's a, a Democrat nationally, he, he was there and was endorsing this completely. And Puerto Rico's uh, resident commissioner, which is our, our non-voting member in the House of Representatives, Jennifer Gonzalez Colon, who's a Republican, she was there endorsing this too. So it really sets the stage for the opportunity to build on what happened, you know, last session where the House passed this and the Senate didn't have the opportunity to take action. Well, now we've got a bill in the Senate. We've got the opportunity to get Senate members on it and be able to, to push for that to be advanced in the legislative process. And, and one fascinating fact is that if you look at the senators who supported it, you have people from all the way to the left, uh, like Bernie Sanders to Senator Bennett from Colorado, which is, you know, one of the more, you know, centrist and, and moderate Democrats. So it really shows kind of a wide swath of ideological support for this legislation. I mean, how would Republicans pass something like this? Well, in the House, I think right now it's very tough. You really have to have control of all three branches to do this, right? I think that that's the most likely scenario. But let's think a little bit here. And it has to do with Republican politics, right? So the common knowledge that Republicans have is that if Puerto Rico were a state, we'd automatically add two Senate Democrats and, you know, four Democrat House members. The electoral politics in Puerto Rico don't really back that up. 
right? So our current uh, governor is a Democrat. Our current resident commissioner of Congress is a Republican. She has been the top vote getter in Puerto Rico elections for the last three election cycles. And she recently announced that she's actually challenging the governor in, in a primary in Puerto Rico because in Puerto Rico, they're both part of the pro-statehood party, right? Uh, which is the one right. that fields candidates on the ballot. So Republicans actually have a base of conservative support in Puerto Rico. They just have to realize that it's there and actually appeal to those voters as opposed to just presuming that just because we're Hispanics, we're going to automatically vote Democrat. So there's a little bit of education that needs to happen there on the Republican side. I believe that there is a possibility that looking at the, the close election that we're looking forward to in 2024, our Republicans are going to have to take a look at those Puerto Rican voters because they're not just on the island in 3.2 million, right? But stateside, there's a population of 5.8 million Puerto Ricans. And they're not just in solid Democrat states like New York. They're also in states like Florida, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Georgia, Wisconsin, Arizona. And in all of those states, even just a few thousand votes could tilt the balance of the Electoral College. Right. And it's also it's ultimately even more than that. Like this is a state. These are people who are American citizens who don't have the same rights as everyone else. Oh, most definitely. I think that anyone on the Republican side or the Democratic side that's looking at this from a perspective of our core values as a country. America was founded on the idea of government by consent of the governed. That's literally why we fought the American Revolution. And territory status goes directly against that. Holding fellow U.S. citizens under a permanent territory status where they don't have a say in the federal laws that they live under. And then on top of that, they're treated unequally and worse than everyone else under those laws. That's un-American. So on a principle basis, I think it's absolutely 100% clear. And there's many Republicans that when you, you talk about it from a constitutional perspective and that principles basis, they really get it and, and they're on board with it. It's the politics and the short-term thinking that really gets in the way of much of their potential for, for supporting this further. And that's part of what we're trying to cut across now in our outreach efforts and our education efforts in the Puerto Rico 51st such an interesting project. I mean, do you need volunteers? Do you need money? What do you guys need? So right now, our biggest need is for our fellow citizens stateside to contact their members of Congress, to reach out to their representatives and senators. You can go onto our website at pr51st.com and click on the take action button. We've got a web form that you can use to reach out to your members of Congress to let them know that America shouldn't be holding colonies that America needs to make sure that all its citizens have the opportunity to have a say in the type of government that they live under. And in the case of the 3.2 million U.S. citizens of Puerto Rico, we're being held as a territory on behalf of American citizens by Congress. So you guys have the power contacting your members of Congress to tell them, you know, sponsor this legislation, the Puerto Rico Status Act and provide a pathway out of territory status for our fellow citizens in Puerto Rico. And that's not only going to help Puerto Rico significantly improve its local situation, but ultimately it's going to strengthen American democracy because right now there's a lack of representation of U.S. citizens in Congress where we're passing laws that impact people in Puerto Rico, but we don't have any representation in the Senate. And in the House, we only get one member that can speak on the floor, but ultimately can't vote on bills that impact their constituents. So insane. Thank you so much for coming on. No, thank you so much, Molly. I greatly appreciate it. And definitely, if there's any opportunities to provide further updates on this issue or any other information that would be helpful for you or your audience, we'd love to be back here and continue showcasing the, the growth of this issue, which is you know, not just an issue for elected officials, but it's really a citizens movement for people in Puerto Rico, as well as all of our allies and supporters stateside that together are going to make the difference and change the course of American history for the better. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jung-Fast, the news just broke that 
seems pretty disturbing. What do you see in here? Fucking guy. <laughs> Am I allowed to curse? <laughs> can, 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 we, can we just cue Nandor from what we do in the shadows saying yes. fucking guy? Fucking guy. This fucking guy. As To quote Nandor, Satin Island's best resident, <laughs> that fucking guy, the senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin, messed up the Inflation Reduction Act, now trying to mess up the 2024 presidency. Joe Manchin is not going to run for re-election, but instead he's going to going to do a listening tour, which means he's going to try and run for president and mess up the election for Joe Biden and bring us back into fascism. And that is why Joe Manchin occupies our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.